and welcome back to another episode of Mormon Expression. And today uh, you get to have me as your host. I'm Lindsay, and I've been on a few podcasts before here. But we have a really special treat, and that's not me. It's uh, the guests that we have today from Feminist Mormon Housewives, the prolific blog on the internet that is the best blog in the whole world. <laughs> and um, I blog I blog there, but I'm not the star of the show tonight. Tonight, I'm going to introduce our panel. We have uh, Lisa. Uh, Lisa, do you want to say hi? Hi. Lisa is a celebrated and eminent founder of FeministMormonHousewives.org. She's kind of our mother goddess who lives in uh, Idaho, and she's written or been interviewed by the New York Times and Ms. Magazine, CNN, The Tribune. I don't know, a bunch of other ones. She's pretty darn famous. Yeah. And then we have, we have Teresa. Teresa, do you want to say hi? Hello. Teresa, you might have seen her work in UK's Guardian. She is our sharp and savvy journalist on our on our blog, and That's she hilarious. she writes as Reese Dixon, um, and she has her own lifestyle blog, ReeseDixon.com. But she she writes for the UK's Guardian, and she's contributed to other articles like Pathios.com and Better Homes and Gardens. And I should say that um, she is a mother of adorable little boy, and Lisa is a mother of three adorable children. And then our last panelist is Sarah. Sarah, can you say hello? Hello. <laughs> Sarah comes to us from 1870s England. No, we've, we've made her say she can't use an English accent tonight. She's our saucy resident atheist and um, Mormon through my own unofficial law of adoption. Sarah's never been Mormon. She's never been baptized. But she's the director of religious education for the Unitarian Universalist Church of Cheyenne and the mother of two boys. Three, so did three. I get that but right? She's golden. We're planning on baptizing her here in the next year yeah. or so. We've got so her on a on a track plan. We're not getting near a body of water with you people. I have three <laughs> boys. Three. Three boys. Sorry. Yeah, that's right. Sorry. Um, I want full credit for all of them. <laughs> you know, if you were a Mormon, you would be behind. I'm just saying. So <laughs> I know I only have three. Okay, so we're gonna get started tonight. Uh, we're gonna talk about something that will probably shock you. We're going to talk about Mormon feminism. And the reason why we decided to talk about this is I think that there's still a lot of common misconceptions about feminism in general, and especially Mormon feminism. So we're going to kind of talk about, give you a basic Mormon feminism 101 course. And um, hopefully we can help you understand what we do on our blog but more specifically, the issues that women are facing in the church and in society. So let's just start with a basic definition of feminism. A lot of people have a lot of crazy ideas of what they think a feminist is. So do you guys want to start us off on what is a feminist? What is feminism in general? Well, I think you need to be dedicated to the hatred of men. <laughs> you have to be a lesbian. Which, iron which is ironic because you also have to want to be a man. I know, it's... <laughs> Internalized self-loathing. I, I think that's the short definition for feminism. That's why we burn right. our bras, right? Because we hate yeah. our bodies. And also, also, um, we have to be lesbians. Yes, which is the fun part. That doesn't perk. hurt. No, so 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 feminism. I mean, everyone thinks it's the hateful 
lesbian who doesn't wear makeup and hates, you know, men and society. What is what is feminism? I'd say the proper way to begin this discussion of feminism would be to emphasize that there's really no such thing as one feminism. There are a multiplicity of feminisms depending on your um, priorities and belief in certain aspects of, um, you know, social justice and all kinds of these issues. Um, But on the whole, the broad definition is just anybody who thinks that men and women should have their contributions and opportunities equally valued. So wait, does that mean that you want men and women to like look the same and dress the same? <laughs> like you want you want no. women to stop wearing dresses and start wearing pants to church, right? You will get me out of my heels only after you have amputated my feet. Ooh. No. No, I love my heels and my dresses. Um, there are some in there are some feminists who feel that makeup and heels is playing into this false beauty paradigm. Um, that tends to be a little bit more of a dated approach to feminism, um, but it's all about having the choice to freely choose and not have any conscriptions placed on you and then to have that choice respected. Yeah. Can I bust in there though and say that I, I would really distinguish between informed choice and uninformed choice. Like Tree is saying, you know, yeah, I love my, I love my heels. I love my makeup and I'm making an informed feminist choice to wear them. I don't think that's the same thing as someone who has grown up inside the patriarchy, has only had media that's dominate, dominated, you know, by the patriarchy, and is making that choice for very different reasons. And I'm not saying, like, burn the witch or she's out of the feminist club, but those aren't the same. No, Ida definitely agree with that. And, and for example, women who feel ashamed of their face and will not leave the house without makeup that would be a problem. That would be an internalized patriarchy. Me, when I wear makeup, it's to enhance features that I like. It's to present myself to the world in a certain way. It is um, a medium through which I can express myself. And there are plenty of times I leave the house without makeup. And so if it's a choice that I'm doing as an independent agent, something that I am choosing because of what it brings to me instead of um, something that is imposed upon me, then that would be the feminist distinction. Well, speaking of leaving the home tree, so that just reminded me of another misconception people have. I often hear that feminism is trying to destroy the home and the family, and not just in the religious context. It's the idea of feminism and feminists hate or disagree with women who choose to be mothers or choose to stay home and cook and live in those more traditional roles. What would you say about that? Well, um, I'm sure that you are directing this question specifically to me because I am Reese Dixon of <laughs> the lifestyle blog, ReeseDixon.com, where I write every week about cooking and parenting and crafts you can make to enhance your home. So obviously, um, I am not out to destroy. <laughs> 
the home. Again, it's all about informed choice. So if I am making crafts because that is the, like my, you know, like our grandmothers, if I'm quilting because that is the only means of expression that is acceptable for me, that's a problem. If I'm quilting today because I find value in honoring that tradition, in creating um, a symbol of my, my art that is also then nurturing, providing nurturing in the warmth, that tangible um, artifact that then becomes used. You know, all of that is um, something that I dedicate my life to and get great value from. But if, I, if I'm doing it out of limited options, then that's a problem again. But since I'm doing it because it's where I find joy, where I find a calling, um, where I find power in creation, then those are all great things to be celebrated. I mean, you talk about options, but like we're in America, right? So women <laughs> have, they can do whatever they want, right? They, any woman can stay, be a stay-at-home mom if she chooses, and it's her choice. Um, no. I'd like to sort of speak to that a little bit because I don't, um, as a stay-at-home mother now of, you know, 12 years, I guess, I, I don't feel as empowered about it as Teresa does, I guess. I don't feel like it was, <laughs> it, I don't feel like it was really a choice that I made as an empowered choice or an informed choice or, um, I felt like it was something I felt sort of trapped into, I guess, a little bit. Um, I felt like I'd been told my whole life that this is what you're supposed to choose. And so therefore, you know, I followed the mommy track and, um, you know, did all the, and I, and I feel like for the most part that that is the experience of most women. And it isn't that I, that I was actually trapped. I could have made other choices, but because my entire life sort of set me up to make these choices, I, being a good Mormon girl, made the choices I was supposed to make. And then after I'd made them, I realized that perhaps I wasn't as happy as everybody told me I would be. So when we're talking about like informed decisions that's what we that's what we mean that mm -hmm. people might have the options or resources available but they might not just be, even be aware of that I mean well and I think I, I was aware but I just wouldn't choose that because that's what bad girls do you know and um, obviously I have a different view of that now and I could still make a different choice you know like I it's not like after you have children obviously it's a lot harder to take a different path and I have not um, taken that hard road yet, but I hope to someday do so. But it, it, it's, um, I think it's, it's very complicated. It's a very, very complicated, um, it's a very complicated issue because, um, certainly there are women who absolutely choose this from a completely empowered mm -hmm. point. And I am all for that happening. But there are also a lot of women, and there are a lot of women who are very happy in that place, in the place of motherhood. And, and, and I think that there are some men who are happy in that, you know, stay-at-home father position. Um, well, I think that's I, the idea of, like, f people think that feminists want to strip those choices away from women, that they want to take that away, when in reality it's the opposite we're not trying to well, take anything away from a person. I think that that is just, yes. I think the vast majority of feminists would absolutely say, I want you to really have a choice one way or the other, both men and women. 
like if there are men who want to be stay-at-home fathers, I think that there are plenty of feminists who would absolutely applaud that choice. Now, in actual reality, I think it's a little more complicated because I think that there is sort of an overarching. Um, um, I, 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 I think in theory, all feminists would say, I want women to be able to choose what they want to do. But I think in practice, there can be, in reality, there are feminists who really don't think, I mean, I've read them, who really don't think that women should be choosing to stay home because, you know, they feel like women are throwing away their potential when they do that. And personally, that has been my experience, but I think that there are women who experience that very differently. So, I, I, I mean, you can't say that that absolutely does not exist. There, right, there are feminists who, who think that way, but... Um, but I would well, say that, that, that they're a minority, and if pressed, they probably, in theory, would still want women to have the choice, but they just would disagree with the choice, I guess. I'd say, just to put that in a little more context, the, the feminists who say that, you know, women are wasting their lives, you know, those are the most extreme, Who I mean, just a handful of people who, um, you know, are selling books and that kind of thing. So while they, that argument does absolutely exist and it would be disingenuous to pretend otherwise, it is not, I would say it's not at all the mainstream feminist no. view. I, I would agree. Guys, it's not the mainstream. And I, I don't want to, I feel like sometimes, you know, we push back so hard against second wave feminism, you know, that was much more strident and that was much more linear about like women just need to get out of the home. And let's be clear, we're talking about <laughs> white women, since women right, of color right, right. had been out of the home. <laughs> but um, I I'm, 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 can't believe I'm blanking on her name. Who, I'm trying to think of the CEO, oh, Teresa will know, or, or, um, who gave that speech where she just said, like, women just need to lean into it a little bit more. Like, push, push. <sighs> What's that? To be, um, to you know, expand. You know, wasn't she a Google? A Google? CEO? I was just gonna say Google. Yeah, I think that's right. She yeah. did a TED talk. Right. Uh, yeah. yeah. And I, I think there's something to saying that, like, oh, okay, you know, being staying at home is valuable. Being in the workforce is valuable. But we have to be a little bit more critical, like you both were saying, about how those choices come about. You know, and and be willing to be a little bit critical of them, to not just say like, oh, they're both equal choices, whatever anybody chooses, it's okay. To say, right. well, you know. Well, and that's where I want to talk about, I mean, you brought up the issue of privilege, and that can, privilege can be its own podcast. I mean, it's mm. it's such a vast topic, but we can talk talk about that a little bit. Um, I feel like privilege is a is a word that's often missing from this debate when we talk about what women should be doing and what women shouldn't be doing. First of all, we need to remember that, um, at least in my case, like I'm a white American woman. So right away, that gives me privilege over the choices of a lot of women in the world. So when I try to make a decision or a choice and say that everybody should be doing it, I need to give some thought to this life situations and the struggles and the limitations that other people have. 
Right. I think I was just, I can't remember now where I was reading it, but I was just reading somebody saying that they went on a date and there, it was a disastrous date. And the date said that women have stayed at home for centuries. And so why should we change it? And that is a perfect example of privilege because as Sarah mentioned, women of color have not stayed at home. Well, first of all, no women have stayed at home, you know, right. prior to last century, but um, women of color have never stayed at home. Poor women have never stayed at home. This is such, um, it, it's hard to extrapolate this, especially since we are such a worldwide church. I just think all the time, like when we have lesson after lesson or um, talk after talk, talking about how important it is for women to stay home and, you know, have clean children and all this, how does this apply at all to women who live below poverty, to women who live in third world countries, uh, to women who live in developed nations where it's it's just not done that women stay at home. You know, it's just really not um, a message that is applicable to the majority of people. Well, and that's, I think that's a good segue to, to start talking about Mormon feminism in general. Um, why we're Mormon feminists and, and, you know, I consider myself a feminist and a Mormon feminist if we're going to apply all those labels Mm -hmm. to it. But, you know, my faithful friends in the church see feminism. We kind of call it the F words. They, they think that, you know, Mormonism and feminism are at odds with each other. And, and likewise, my ex Mormon friends, um, actually agree with their faithful their, their faithful counterparts on this and i've heard them say you know there's no such thing as mormon feminist you can't be mormon and be a feminist because the beliefs are so at odds with each other so uh let's just talk about what is mormon feminism do we want to talk about it from like a historic perspective or a current perspective or do a little bit of both let's do a little bit of both i um let's we can talk about, you know, early women in the church a little bit and how it's kind of developed. I think that there's a whole discussion to be had about the history of Mormon feminism, but maybe we can uh, focus mostly on what it is today and the issues that we see today in the church. Right. Just as a broad overview, I mean, just the, you know, the Mormon women of the early church were, were radical ladies. I mean, they were not quiet Victorian women sitting home and being quiet. I mean, that it wasn't at all what their experience was. And so, you know, this idea that, you know, Mormon women have always been these quiet, nurturing souls who, you know, attended to, you know, their homes and their hearths and never did anything beyond that is completely false. Mormon women from the beginning were organizing. And, you know, even the organization of the Relief Society was kind of a radical act, Um that wasn't, women's societies really were not that common at that time. They were kind of a new thing and they were a very radical thing. And so that the church went along with that sort of radical end of what was happening within society, I think is significant. And then, you know, as we go into Utah and the or the Mormon polygamists, um, these were women who were very much... Um, leaders in their culture, leaders in their society. They were starting, you know, local relief societies. They started the primary. They started the young women's programs. And they did so very independently. And not only that, but they were incredibly strong advocates for women's um, right to vote. So they were they were suffragists. And they, they associated with the most radical wing of the suffrage movement. 
and because the, only the most radical wing of the suffrage movement would have anything to do with polygamous women. And <laughs> so they were sending women out east to become educated, to come back and be doctors. And Brigham Young was actually advocating women to be involved in anything that was useful. Yeah, um, I actually he, nothing I have a quote not pragmatic. From, do you want me to read that? He, he says, uh, this is from Brigham Young. He said, I've often told my sisters in the female relief societies, we have sisters here who, if they had the privilege of studying, would make just as good mathematicians or accountants as any man. And we think they ought to have the privilege to study branches of knowledge that they may develop the powers with which they are endowed. We believe that women are not used, are useful not only to sweep house, houses, wash dishes, make beds, and raise babies, but that they should stand behind the counter, study law or physic medicine, or become good bookkeepers and be able to do the business in any counting house, and this to enlarge their sphere of usefulness for the benefit of society at large. That was right. Brigham Young. Yeah, and I don't think Brigham Young said those things because he was a radical feminist. He said those things because he was a very practical man, and he saw the needs of Zion, and he saw that women could fulfill them, and that was the way he approached everything. He was very pragmatic about it. So, well, not everything, but a lot <laughs> of things. So, um, and, and it really wasn't until sort of Mormons, beca- you know, went through the whole trying to normalize and become the best kind of Americans and went through the 50s and the current generation of leaders were being raised in these sort of stereotypical um, nuclear family homes and had sort of forgotten a little bit about their grandparents' polygamous past and their grandmother's radical feminist histories that we sort of got this narrative of the, you know, angel in the house or the guardian of the hearth. And that is when you know, Mormon womanhood sort of took on that narrative. It wasn't really, it wasn't the first hundred years of Mormonism by any means. So really, um, you know, the roots of Mormon feminism, we absolutely have, you know, some history that we can call on to say this is a part of our heritage and our ancestresses would be proud of us for, you know, for what we are choosing to do. And I personally, of course, ascribe to that theory. Obviously, there are differences between their brands of feminism and ours. They would never, their brand of feminism was very much um, hierarchical and never questioned, you know, their subordinates to the patriarchy or questioned any of that sort of thing that we we do actually, you know, tend to question. But I feel like they were more free to to explore things like they, they explored the idea of Heavenly Mother a lot more than we do. And the divine feminine a lot more than we do. And women, you know, you touched on this a little bit. We're giving blessings to each other and healing. And um, so they did some things that we would think are pretty crazy now. Right, you know, absolutely. If a, if a woman got up and put her hands on my head and blessed me in front of, you know, the Relief Society, they would probably send us to church discipline, you know. Mm-hmm. But that's that was very common in early church. Absolutely. Yeah. And so now what do we want to talk about? I guess where Mormon feminism is today. Yeah, we can talk about that. I, uh, Teresa, do you want to talk a little bit about Spencer W. Kimball and kind of the influence, like his influential <sighs> talks? I, and I'm not trying to place the blame on him because he actually allowed women to start praying in sacrament meetings. So, I mean, there was some progress made under Spencer W. Kimball, but we do have some famous, really great talks from him that Teresa can talk about. Yeah. Um, well, 
<clears throat> a lot of this can still be found in Miracle of Forgiveness, too, you know, where he talks about, he, he likes to frame it um, similar to Julie Beck frames it in this power that women have, this nurturing power to change the world through raising children. And he um, really strongly encouraged women to um, fight the evils of the world through creating a home like the temple. And um, in fact, he, there's this one part in his book where he talks about how women can heal the world through meeting their children at the end of a school day with bread mm -hmm. and fresh jam. And so he was very much a um, proponent of women staying at home. Um, and then, of course, his work was then quoted in um, Benson's talk um, to the Mothers in Zion, where he infamously <laughs> called for women to come home from the factories and come home from the laundries and quit their jobs and just be stay-at-home moms, which many, many women did and made huge sacrifices to so, do so. But why is that bad? I mean, why would we be critical of that? What What is wrong with with asking women to come home and take care of their kids and bake bread and jam for for their children, what are what? Why would we have a gripe with that? Well, <clears throat> anybody else jump right in. But my, my problem with that is the limited expression of a woman's talents. Where I mean, obviously, I love to cook. I love to nurture. I am all about the home. But uh, even I would say that. I enjoy having other avenues to use my skills. Um, and there are plenty of women who do not enjoy the home and the homemaking arts the way that I right do. Right here, and, baby, right here. <laughs> and feel crammed into this box to the detriment of the talents, the God-given talents they actually do have. I mean, um, you know, I have friends who are brilliant engineers and lawyers and and teachers even and nurses you know even fields that aren't so stereotypically male um, dominated but just have incredible gifts to contribute to the world in different avenues and so while it's wonderful to elevate the work of the home um, and that's something that I am obviously very committed to doing it's it's not the exclusive realm where a woman has something to contribute. Well, maybe this you know is what, a, I, go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to clarify, you know, as a stay at home mom who's been doing this for 12 years, it isn't that I hate it. I mean, I do hate it sometimes because <laughs> I very much, I, I love, I love crafting. I love sewing. I love creating things just like Teresa. I don't have a fab fabulous blog, but I, I do enjoy those things. And I, and um, now that my children are not babies anymore, I very much enjoy spending my time with them. Um, I, I did not enjoy the baby stage. I didn't like anything about that. But um, that's just because I'm a terrible, terrible person. Nope. Um, <laughs> the same way. In the same way. They just lay there and look at you. What else yeah. are you supposed to do? Yeah. You know, and there I, uh, but I, uh, I, there are many aspects to the nurturing realms that I deeply enjoy. I like cooking, actually. I don't like cleaning up afterwards, but I enjoy it very much. I, I don't want to have to do it every single night, but, you know, there are a lot of things about I, that mothering and nurturing and 
and I, I love hanging out with my kids. I love reading books to them. I love, you know, so, but I do feel like telling me that these are my only options makes me and, and has in my past made me feel really helpless and tortured <laughs> and, um, trapped yeah. and unhappy. And, and so I, tried, I tried so hard to be happy in that role. And I, I expected to be happy in that role. And I was so shocked when I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that so that's why. Two. Well, and that there. whole statement, that whole statement that like it would fix the ills of the world, that is a loaded gun. I mean, it, it isn't just a positive statement saying, oh, you know what? It'd be really nice to greet your kids with, you know, some bread and some jam. It's a much larger statement about if the world is in shambles, ladies, look to yourselves. You know, right. if you if you were out in the workforce and fulfilling your own selfish desires, maybe the world wouldn't be in the mess that it's in. You know, like, I, I think that this also um, ignores the fact that there are many different ways to nurture. For example, while Lisa might not have enjoyed the baby years, she is incredibly gifted at nurturing this community that she has created at, at Feminist Mormon Housewives and all like of the women. I think that she breastfeeds us all. <laughs> That's how I like to think of it. We don't I stop the- nurturing once, once we hit 18 and I think Lisa is a prime example of how gifted she is in nurturing different aspects. <laughs> Of, of the journey. Can we also address, though, that men are not uh, exempt from nurturing? I mean, I kind of, I grew up with that idea in the church that men are nurtured, or women are nurturers and men are, you know, the breadwinners. And mm-hmm. that's been one of the greatest uh, things feminism has given me is to see that some men are a lot better nurturers than I am. And it's and mm-hmm. it's more innate, you know. Like n- nurturing is something I've had to work for. Mm-hmm. And some some people, men or women, come by it naturally. I think yes, that's absolutely just, true. Can we just pause for a moment to talk about the conversation I just had in the car with all of my children, in which they told me that my husband is a much better mother than I am. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> knife in the heart! <laughs> I'm telling Spencer W. Kimball. and i'm sure your bishop will be calling you soon yeah well let's talk about i mean i often hear um i was just talking to a friend on the on the way here and i who you know doesn't really get mormon feminism and he was saying i just don't understand like you know men have the priesthood they have their responsibilities it's not like it's that big of a deal and women have their thing they have relief society i just don't see like why you guys think the church is sexist i just don't see it and, you know, I was kind of the same way growing up. I was really happy in the system. I thought women were valued. I mean, we hear about how great women are all the time. So maybe... My understanding is that BYU in the 70s was a haven of feminism. <laughs> but I've just been reading Naismith a lot, so I could have it wrong. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, right? We we know how to empower women. Well, but we do. I mean, we have these conferences to empower women. We have all, you know, at BYU, right? Isn't that where they have the the women's conference every year and women come back feeling really inspired and empowered, which I also think means they come back feeling really guilty on things that they should be doing or yeah. things that they shouldn't be doing. But can let's talk about um, 
it was a big eye opener for me when I was first getting into these issues. I got on LDS Wave site that Teresa has helped found, um, and they kind of listed some of the issues, just like a list of where women are um, not equal to men. Can we can we just talk about can maybe just list some of those issues? Teresa, well, we could, I wish we had the infographic, um, Cynthia L. from BCC's Ward Breakdown. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Mm-mm. Oh, that was amazing. Yeah. Tree, explain it. Because I don't know all of the um, titles. Well, um, the church, let me see if I can pull it up really quickly. The, um, you know, the, the newsroom has been releasing all these infographics for the press to understand how Mormonism works. And they had one, and I didn't see the original one, but it talked about church leadership you know, just prior to conference, like how this all works. And they had, you know, pink for women and blue for men, and they kind of showed how this all broke down. And, um, you know, Cynthia at BCC felt like it was not quite uh, a genuine representation. And so she redid it. And it's really stark to see it right there in blue and pink, how the leadership roles break down and how, um, you know, when conferences are given, there are just these rows of blue men representing the speakers. And then there's two pink women just floating out there in that sea. And, and that effect goes all the way down the line. And um, where it really starts to get just shocking is when you see the ward level and you recognize that being a deacon is a a priesthood office and they have responsibilities um that women don't i mean you know we often say in mormon feminist circles that if a not a single woman was there you could hold all the church meetings you wanted to but without a man we cannot well in most places, you cannot even get into the building without a, a man, a priesthood, somebody there to supervise or chaperone or who knows what. Um, but you can't conduct a meeting. You can't perform an ordinance. You can't do anything without a man there. And even positions like um, primary president, which theoretically can have a male uh, teacher that she is responsible for, she still reports to a bishop. And so, um, and that is like the only example that I could think of where, I mean, maybe if you had a man on like the, well, they don't even have an activities committee anymore. So there really is maybe just that one opportunity for a man to serve with a woman leader, whereas a male leader will always always be over a woman in every single circumstance. One of the most powerful things for me, you guys can remind me who wrote this. I saw the post where they regendered the sacrament meeting. Do you remember that post? Someone Oh wrote? yeah, the pink what was it? It was like a walk in pink moccasins by Carolyn Pearson. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. And they talk about I mean, if you if you are skeptical that there's any sexism in the church, go sit in a sacrament meeting at your local ward. And in your mind, switch out where there's a male, switch it out for a female. So pretend that the bishop is a female and pretend that his counselors are female. And then pretend that the people passing sacrament are female. And then pretend in your, in your own pew, in your own row, s switch out the male and female and see if 
you can kind of see that there's this imbalance there. I mean, we're so used to seeing the boys pass the sacrament and the bishop presiding. It just seems natural to us. But if we were to switch it and put women in those positions, how comfortable would many of us be with women presiding and and doing all the ordinances and telling us and instructing us on how to do these things? Yeah, and very comfortable. (laughs) And even as... Even as a woman who has been involved in Mormon feminism for, I guess, a long time now, I guess I'm getting old. But <laughs> even, even, a, you know, even as someone, I felt, I feel like I, uh, my, you know, my education, my, my feminist education has been very much been, you know, like being self-educated through blogging. I've never like been formally educated on what it means to be a feminist, and I've never been educated. I don't feel particularly knowledgeable about doctrine or policy or the church or uh, everything I know about Mormon feminism I've learned through the people that I've interacted with online and and you know through books that I've read and things but as I um, I still to this day even after eight years of blogging about Mormon feminism I still don't always hear the sexism in the way that our leaders speak to us and Mm. I'm often shocked when I step back and do role reversal in talks and um, at, at how sexist it is if you if you change it from a man speaking to, to to women and change it as if it were a woman speaking to a man. I mean, just as a prime example, when I went to go write um, the April Fool's Day post that I did this year about how we were going to start a male auxiliary, I went and I actually picked some pretty standard talks to um, do a role reversal with. And I I hadn't, like, I hadn't really, I had listened to those talks and had thought, you know, after eight years, yeah, I I felt it. But then when I did, when I actually sat down and wrote out the role reversal, like, I would hesitate and say to myself, oh, I can't really write that. That sounds too awful. And then I would go back and read what he had written, and I actually wrote exactly what he wrote. I had just switched it. But when I switched it, when I heard it the first time, I had a minor twinge. When I switched it, it made me kind of want to vomit. And, mm. it, you know, like, I, and I almost couldn't print it because I felt like I was, I was, it was went too far. Well, but some I of it was like... Anything. Because, you know, we talk about women being praised, right? Like, women are so great and and so powerful and strong. And that's kind of what you did on your post. You took some of those quotes where women were being praised, right? Right. And and picture a man being talked talked to that way in the church. I think that would make a lot of men feel uncomfortable. I can't remember remember the language. One of the ones, one of the quotes that just made me want to, you know, vomit was when I said, men, you have a purpose. You know, like, okay. <laughs> I've never, ever heard a woman tell men that. Why would she? Man, you have a purpose. Like, Where's can that? you imagine? I'm going to look up that incredible women, LDS women are incredible talk. That's a great one yeah. to go look and regender. That was in conference like two years ago, was it? But um, I think that here's here's the problem that I see. A lot of Mormons say, well... Okay, yeah, men are in leadership, that's fine, but women have their jobs to do and their roles to do too. First of all, women get to be mothers. They get to be mothers. You know, 
Um, so why aren't we content with that? Because, you know, men, they're not as inherently spiritual as women are. <laughs> and they need the priesthood to kind of keep them righteous. How would you guys... How Let's talk about how we respond to to that well, argument. I would, I would really love to address that. Speaking, one, as a mother of a boy who takes great offense at anyone telling me that he is less spiritual or less anything than anybody else. But also... And the as damage... A, the damage we yeah. do to our young men when we tell them that over and Absolutely. over again. It really and, makes me angry. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and also, as a woman who has gone through eight years, well, actually, 12 years now that I'm going through secondary infertility, um, not, I mean, it's just so blatant that not all women are mothers. And despite the well-meaning effort, efforts of Sherry Dew, um, we are not all mothers. There is great contributions I felt like I could make before I had children, but it was absolutely, fundamentally not the same thing. The level of um, intimacy, the level of sacrifice, the level of connection, um, the the depth of the relationship, like none of those things are the same thing. And of course, then there's also the fact that women get to be mothers and men get to be fathers. The corollary is not motherhood, priesthood. The corollary is motherhood, fatherhood, priesthood, and then a big fat open space that has yet to be filled in. Yeah. Can I just add though that like Teresa is not saying like you don't understand intimacy or love or sacrifice until you're a mother. (laughs) Yes. Thank you for making that plain. Yeah. Believe me, I have the infertility cred. That is not where I'm going with that. All of those things are achievable, but but not within that same framework. Like I cannot, as a young we, a young woman's leader, have the same relationship with one of my young women that her mother does. That is not the same. I can have intimacy and sacrifice and love and all of those things in different formats, in different ways. And I can contribute and I could, I was, I definitely had things to contribute and had worthwhile relationships and learned great lessons during those years of infertility. But it is just not the same thing. Well, how would you address criticism that, you know, women like us just want power, we're power hungry, that we just, you know, want to lead and want to be in charge? Lean into it. <laughs> Ask I think, for a little I think, more I mean, power. In the church, Ask we're to be conditioned. a little bit more in charge. Be a little less embarrassed about it. Yeah, I think we're conditioned exactly to be embarrassed about it. I mean, we have the the pride cycles in the Book of Mormon, and of course that that can be applied to men and women, but women are not supposed to want power. We're supposed Mm -hmm. to be humble. I I guess men aren't supposed to want power either, but men get the power naturally. And and I think that every ward has that guy who openly aspires to callings, right? That guy who like struts around and makes sure that everybody knows he's available and and can carry a mantle of authority and is and just waiting the for the day. The most is the one who's the most obviously humble, who's like right. going out of his way to be ostentatiously humble. I mean, those guys exist, but the you know, they are admired by a certain population and they are tolerated by the rest. Whereas a woman 
who tried to strut around and say, I'm, I'm ready to take on a mantle of authority. You can put me wherever you need me. I'm ready. Like, are you kidding me? That would be a, a witch who would be shown the door. Yeah, anytime a woman in the church, I feel like, is, you know, more assertive or aggressive in getting something, like, you know, we've all heard stories of the mean Relief Society president or Young Women's president Mm -hmm. that uh, going on a rampage for a bigger budget or something like that, she is automatically labeled as... Difficult. Difficult, yeah. Whereas, you know, in conference, we have these women modeled for us. They're sweet and polite and kind and and smiling and um that's this the kind of women that are happened for to us. me when i was young women's president i was newly called and my the outgoing young women's president had made this arrangement with the young men's president and it was an arrangement that i did not agree with i did not feel like it was a good use of resources so i um went to him just to have a very straightforward discussion and he told me he literally said well the ship has sailed and he refused to budge and so I was ready to then you know well let's go have a meeting with the bishop and you know do the next thing that you would normally do but I had um one of my one of the outgoing counselors pull me aside and say he you know just this is not going to work. Just let him fail. Just smile and nod. And, you know, you don't want to get a reputation. So just, you know, let this proceed for a little while and it won't work out anyway. And so, so the, the choice was speak up, save money, save time, create a more positive experience for the youth and be labeled difficult or waste time, you know, hurt feelings, waste money, you know, allow some of the young people to have a negative experience and not be difficult. Like, the, you know, either I had to take the bullet or the young people had to take a bullet, you know, because they, heaven forbid, we just address this like I would in the business world and, you know, sort it out amongst ourselves. Yeah. And I think that this isn't just exclusive to, to Mormonism, but in society in general, I mean, we have tropes of what women are and a trope is just kind of almost like a stereotype that we hear played over and over and you see this in politicians all the time I like to use Sarah Palin and Hillary Hillary Clinton because you have Sarah Palin who was you know sweet and feminine and she got criticized for being stupid and and hot yeah and her her identity got reduced to being like the hot milf I heard her being called the milf all the time but it worked for her in a certain way. There was a certain group of people that really attached to that, to that idea of um, she's a sweet, kind, submissive, pretty woman. Whereas you have Hillary Clinton, who she's less feminine and more assertive, and she gets labeled. Whoa, I don't know about that. Less feminine. Oh, a, a less <laughs> feminine in, in her dress. Like she, you don't see her wearing... Um, short shorts on the cover of a magazine right you see her wearing her pantsuits and so that means feminine i think in society yes traditionally yeah presents traditionally in that gender yeah i i'd support you Lindsay. yeah well i I feel like uh hillary clinton gets i hate to to say this word but she's the bitch you know and you have sarah palin is the slut so women can't can't win but in the church, um, you can't really be the bitch, but you can be the sweet, submissive woman. And that gives you power to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's the only 
the only way for me to to have gotten things done was to kind of keep the front of the sweet Mormon woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, be assertive, but under the front of the sweet Mormon woman. Right. Well, and Lindsay, okay. you've talked before about how that dynamic set up set up other women as your competition. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me to do that, for me to be um, to be the good mom and the good wife and the good Mormon woman, that meant I had to set myself apart from other Mormon women. So if I were a better cook than someone, that gave me power. Which, that sounds silly, but I mean, in the church, if your power is attached to, if your role, your divine role is attached to motherhood and homemaking, that's what I had to be good at, right? Because that's what I was striving for. That's how I express my divinity. And so my intentions were good. I wanted to be a good homemaker and a good mother. But not only that, I wanted wanted to be a really good one. So if someone had like a good recipe... Well, I was going to make a better one. I was going to figure out how to do it better. And it worked for me because then people would say, oh, my goodness, Lindsay, that's that's such a great casserole. Will you come teach it in Relief Society or, you know, the recipe? And I found power and opportunities through that. And I didn't see that it was on the backs of other people in the ward who had no interest in that or, you know, didn't have the skills or the resources to do that kind of thing. You know, um, Jessica from the LDS Wave Board, she's Jessa Y at Exponent 2, she talks about her feminist awakening coming when she asked her husband um, what woman was his spiritual idol. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, what woman did he look up to spiritually? And he could not name one. And I think that one of the reasons for that is because... um, we have come to see these acts of casserole baking and bearing children and handouts on Sunday um, for our primary class. We have come to see that as an expression of a woman's religiosity. And so if a woman is going to be a spiritual giant, it's most often the woman who, you know, is baking the best casserole. You know, it's like when you think of who are, who's the spiritual giant in your ward, she's either the wife of a prominent leader or somebody who um, fulfills that gender role to a T instead of somebody who can preach, who can testify, who has great gospel insight, who, you know, practices a very Christ-like life. You know, those aren't our our heroes. It's women who have married mm-hmm. a leader or somebody who knows how to um, fulfill this this rigid gender role. Okay, so I want to talk for a second about my mother and my aunt, Mary. Um, they were both, you know, good Mormon women, but neither of them really fit the, like, the sweet Mormon woman stereotype. You know, they're both, they're both just go-getters. You know, they go and get what they want, and they say what they mean, and they, and, you know, I, I'm not exactly how they turned out this way within Mormon culture, but um, I have seen the way that it affects them in that my, my, you know, my mom and her sister have both accomplished what I think are amazing things and lived amazing lives. And, you know, like, but neither of them have ever really served in like leadership roles in the church. And if you were to ask them, you know, like who they look up to, it's always these, these women that are very much not like them. These women that are kind of quiet and submissive mm-hmm. and, and, and they don't see 
the value in who they are. Like, mm -hmm. even though they fundamentally have always been who they are. And, you know, I could tell you stories about my mother and my Aunt Mary getting in trouble for speaking their minds at church. I have a whole, <laughs> I have a whole suitcase full of stories of, you know, them getting in trouble for, you know, saying it how it is and, and yet still living very much within supporting the patriarchy and raising children who support the patriarchy. You know, like you really couldn't find better Mormon women, but they do not admire themselves because they don't fit the stereotype. And I always, it, it just makes me really sad. There's a woman in my ward who I think of this way too. Like she always um, has the most beautiful spiritual insights and her lessons when she's allowed to give them are the most beautiful spiritually in enlightening lessons that I've probably just about ever had in church. But she always, she'll always say things like, Oh, I promised myself I wouldn't, I wouldn't raise my hand today, but I just have to say something, you know, like she mm -hmm. has this constant desire to silence herself and to mm -hmm. feel like that her voice isn't worthy or I don't know. It, it's a problem. Yeah. And I saw that too. I mean, I saw that I was, I was really good at things that like like cooking or crafting that didn't really matter in the religious context and that women that had a lot of things to offer in that way often felt really insecure about it or about themselves and their position in the ward. And I think back on that now, how silly and actually sad that is that these women who have so much to offer feel like they don't belong or that they're doing something wrong or that they're somehow failing in their divine roles because they can't manifest it in these outward um, marks that we give them, like, you know, how white and ironed their kids' shirts are. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, I think for me that gets back to just how powerful the church is in crafting its narrative, you know? Every Mormon woman I know has a pretty similar ideal about that perfect Mormon woman. I mean, we went to our ward here in town, you know, when my son Atticus was three years old, one time, and for a year afterwards, he could identify a picture of Mormon Jesus, even if it was like holding a pterodactyl and was like a satire. He knew that was Mormon Jesus, and he knew it was the church that was about Jesus and families. Hmm. And I think, like, the, the narrative about... Um, <clears throat> what a good Mormon woman looks like and how gentle and submissive and, uh, you know, all powerful her muffins are. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> just enormous. And what's weird to me is how, how homogenized that story is, even among women who have wildly different experiences mm -hmm. that obviously directly contradict it. But, like, they don't go with their own experiences. They go with that that meme. So so we have that. I mean, we have this constantly given to us in, in conference and in our women's conferences and in religious society manuals. And, and, and the idea is to strengthen the home, which I think all of us would agree is a great goal. I don't think mm -hmm. anyone has any qualms about strengthening your home and your family and spending time. But the problem is... Oh, I do. I think we should destroy all, <laughs> all children in an orphanage. That's true. But, you know, you have no soul. So 
<laughs> no. yeah. I'm kidding. Um, I actually think we should just eat our children. I thought that was that's Sarah's job. She's, to be she's the atheist, so she's supposed to think that, right? <laughs> no. Um. So we. So we have. So we have this. I like the stereotype that's constantly perpetuated. But no, it's not just a stereotype. I mean, it's given to us in the proclamation to the family. I think, like, that's a big one for a lot of us feminists. But I think that there's some small things, too, that we've missed, like, um, that that a lot of us miss, like, the idea that, you know, we talked about men being more prominent in the church. I I actually pulled up Wave's list. I've got Um, it here in front of me, too. Oh, do you want to go down it for us? The I Feel Unequal one? So great. Yeah. Okay, so the Wave list, which was written by um, Chelsea Shields Strayer, um, it's an amazing thing, um, but it's quite long. So let me just kind of scan down and see what we haven't touched on yet. Um, one that I think is great is how she emphasizes that men handle 100% of the church finances. Women never handle any of the money. They can request changes in budget, but that's all they get. Um, they don't accept tithing or have anything to do with any of that. Um, Let's see. Um, The doctor told me when I had my son that um, he said, well, because your son has a penis, he is going to be able to handle the finances. I thought that was like a medical (laughs) condition. That's where the financial brain is. Um, Let's see. Women and men are often called different titles when doing the same job, such as sister versus president, um, or are treated as accessories rather than serving equally with their husbands, such as vision president's wives. Um, Women who are auxiliary leaders have to get every decision approved by a man, and they are um, not invited to attend, and thank goodness this is starting to be a little more flexible, but they are often not invited to attend priesthood executive committee where a lot of decisions are made that affect women run organizations um a woman's value is primarily linked to being a wife and mother rather than a child of god independently working out their own salvation um let's see women have less prominent or public roles in the church uh despite their age um having a a new baby there's no way for a woman to participate in the ritual of the blessing um that the husband presides and is supposed to be, you know, the head and have the final say of all decisions. Let's see the um, the the men make all the decisions when it comes to callings. Women can maybe offer some input, but that can always be overridden. Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts usually have a larger budget than young women's, and they are also allowed to do fundraising. Um, young men and young women's have different manuals, budgets, activities, everything that often create an unequal uh, teaching environment. Fathers and mothers are both given these primary roles to provide and nurture, but men get to explore however they want to provide, whatever career, whatever level, whatever um, income and wherever that comes from, that's all up to their discretion, whereas mothers' best way to nurture is to be stay-at-home moms, and that is um, pretty cut and dried. This, this, I'm going to quote Chelsea directly because I think it's just so brilliant. She says, I feel unequal when men teach me that being a stay-at-home mother is the most important thing a person could do, and yet most of them do not do it. Oh, amen. <laughs> that is so great. Amen. And that's the same talk that's crazy making about Heavenly Mother. Like, who in your actual life that you love and, and revere do you never talk about? Yep. Um, 
Let's see. Most of the lessons and songs are about men. Um, even in really in young women's, you know, we've got like four lessons a year on the priesthood and the young men and elders quorum and high priest. They never learn about Relief Society. There are specific women's issues that men are not trained for or experienced with, such as sexual abuse, domestic violence, women's health, um, and yet are given free reign to advise on including how to wear your garments while you're breastfeeding or having a period, um, the exact way to repent from a sexual encounter that maybe was coercive at best and rape at worst, uh, questions of modesty and uh, repentance from sexual sins that do not take into account a woman's experience with those factors that women have um, not only their own desires, but their own pressures that are distinct from men and that definitely play a role in um, temptation and why a woman would choose to sin. And going back to, to modesty specifically, it's almost always spoken of as a way of controlling and being responsible for the lusts and thoughts of men instead of a means of um, expression to the world and self-respect and controlling their own, uh, rep you know, experience with the world. Um, instead, it's it's always, you know, don't be walking porn. Um, very few women's voices are included in church manuals. Uh, women do not speak in priesthood meetings. In the priesthood session of conference, you will never see a woman there. Well, you will, as of yet, you won't see a woman there. Um, and yet every young women's meeting, every Relief Society meeting, um, women are always going in on the conference level, you know, the general level, but always also on the ward level. We often have a bishop come in and share a thought with young women, a counselor come in and share a thought with Relief Society, but you never see a woman sharing a thought with uh, a priesthood quorum. Um, let's see, uh, women... Uh, can be sealed, men and women can be sealed to different numbers of people. Um, and that also influences uh, temple divorces in this life as well. Women cannot usually have a temple divorce unless they are ready to marry a, another person in the temple, regardless of um, what that first marriage was like. And so you can have a woman who cannot get temple divorced from an incredibly abusive man um, because of these rules that it's better for a woman to be sealed to anybody no matter even if he's abusive than nobody meanwhile a man can be sealed to multiple partners um and then of course we have how we approach heavenly mother that when we do talk about her it's always in a way that um that's a bit taboo and that we we perpetuate this myth that we don't know more about her and we don't speak of her more often because she's too sacred or you know, this idea we impose this idea of chivalry onto the heavens um, that heavenly mother is some fragile flower that has to be protected from our base instincts rather than revere her as a creative goddess um, who can have tremendous power in our lives yeah, and tree can I say something about like if the question is, like, what is Mormon feminism for, or, you know, what what is its aim, I think just having that conversation and changing that really, like, entrenched, powerful narrative where people say with a straight face, I mean, I, I feel like saying, 
oh, we love, we worship, you know, mother in heaven. We just don't talk about her is Mm -hmm. really not different from saying freedom is slavery. Black is white. What? Does that sound (laughs) weird? Well, and I think, is it Margaret Toscano? And I, you guys, I swear, I, I'm not a cusser, but she said mothers deal in shit, you know, and, and puke. And diapers and the worst things of human beings, you know, mothers deal with those. That's a big part of motherhood. So to say that our mother is too sacred to talk about when um, some Mm of the toughest things in life are dealt with by mothers is Mm -hmm. not only offensive, it's silly. And well, actually, I think I want to get on that train. I I think that I am too sacred to be dealing with this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I am too sacred to change diapers. I am we'll too just disappear. sacred to listen to you people whine anymore. Well, Lisa, I think we should have our you to put your socks away. I think we should have a whole podcast on Heavenly Mother, but. Lisa, when Teresa was going down the list, I was thinking of um, your healthy chastity uh, post that you wrote. And that was some kind of enlightening for me, too. It never occurred to me how inappropriate it was uh, for a woman to confess her sins to a man with no Ooh. female representative. Do you want to talk about that for a minute? Yeah. You know, that was um, – I personally um, – didn't ever question it when I was growing up. I went into the bishop's office and he asked me about my sex life and I told ah! him about my sex <laughs> life when I was 14 years old, which consisted of not oh. even knowing what sex was, but that was my sex life. Um, and, um, you know, and then that continued right up until I was going to get married and the bishop asked me about my sex life. <laughs> And now that I think back on it, that is such an unnatural, and it felt un- unnatural. It did. At the same time that it was completely expected, it was incredibly uncomfortable. And I, um, and it never occurred to me to question it either. It never occurred to me to question it. And it wasn't until I was well into blogging about Mormon feminism and heard about some of the things that happened, some of the questions I was never asked incredibly inappropriate questions, but some young women are asked incredibly inappropriate questions, and some young men are asked incredibly inappropriate questions. And um, and it wasn't until I started really thinking about, you know, the wisdom of putting an untrained middle-aged man in a small, small enclosed space with a vulnerable child who is perhaps, you know, not the most wise um, steward of their own sexuality. And then um, just letting that happen all over all the time. That's just creepy. And it's so you don't, you know, like if as a Mormon, I never questioned it. It never occurred to me that that was wrong. And even while I was experiencing it, and it was incredibly uncomfortable, I still never questioned it. Never. Until I started, you know, hearing the experiences of abuse that came out of that situation and realizing what an inappropriate system we have set up. It's not, it, you know, I can, I can understand the problem that they are dealing with in that, you know, we have these beliefs in chastity and we have these beliefs that, you know, you need to be worthy in order to participate in, you know, certain sacred events. And I don't think that that is something that we should 
take lightly or that we should um, do away with. But I do think that we have to reevaluate the means by which we assess that worthiness in our young people, especially. Um, and I guess, you know, I can't think of any perfect solution to it. You know, a part of me thinks that it's really not appropriate to ever question somebody about their sexuality unless they come to you. You know, like if you are a counselor and someone seeks out your wisdom and you have been trained to impart wisdom to somebody in a way that has been, you know, um, proven to be effective and helpful, why then, yes, that's appropriate. But outside of those circumstances, I think that we are going to have to really look at a, as a culture at at the way that we handle this. And I, I don't have a perfect solution. The one thing that I did come up with that I thought might be useful is that when, you know, when I was thinking about it, I was thinking about initiatories and how, you know, because, you know, we've talked many times about how is it possible that women already have the priesthood because they perform sort of these priesthood functions within the temple. And that, you know, that's just a debate that goes on. I don't have a real strong stance on it. I sort of like the idea of that, but um, obviously, I don't really know. But, you know, if in that circumstance, women are given the keys to perform certain functions that otherwise would be given to a priesthood, I thought, well, then perhaps because we have clearly a system that is so dysfunctional and creepy that perhaps we could extend to young women's leaders or Relief Society presidents or even, you know, I was thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could have like trained counselors. I don't know. I don't know if that would be possible, but you know, if the church could spend some of their billions of dollars in training, you know, counselors, actual counselors for the different wards that, that, you know, that hold Mormon values, but who are also, you know, that have the knowledge they need in order to not ask creepy questions or implant harmful ideas of sexuality or, you know, not notice that a person is telling you that they were date raped and instead asking them to repent for having just been raped. You know, like those things need to be fixed and they need to be fixed mm -hmm. as soon as possible. Well, and I think I would recommend every listener to go to feministmormonhousewives.org and look up Lisa's post. It's called 13 Articles of Healthy Chastity. Is that right? Yeah. And she kind of lists like, you know, the problems that she talked about and and some solutions and it's it's really enlightening and I think um that's an issue that needs to be addressed really fast with our leaders mm -hmm. in the church. And and that, you know, we're, we're running out of time and I thought that that would be a good thing to talk about. We've brought up all these problems and I think some people think, well, okay, so what what now? Um what is it that we want? What what's do, are there solutions? Is our solution just to sit here and gripe about it? Um, what is there anything that can be done? Is change possible in the Mormon Church? Well, you know, one of the well, things I, think, I so. think that Teresa should talk about is <laughs> didn't Wave also come up with another list of, or was that, was that Natalie? Who was it that came up with the list of changes that the church could make that would require no change in, yep. in um, priesthood? ordinances that would create a more equal playing field for women in the church. Go to. 
Yeah, Nat, Nat Kelly did one at FMH, and then it's something that we talk about a lot at WAVE. This is kind of our mission, is to encourage gender equity within the church. And um, Teresa, will you really quick just tell us about WAVE and what it is really fast? Yeah, um, WAVE stands for Women Advocating for Voice and Equality. And WAVE stands for Women Advocating for Voice and Equality. And our mission is to advocate for gender equality within the LDS Church. And the way we hope to accomplish this is from both a top-down and a bottom-up method. So we do enter into conversations wherever we can with church leaders on a general level. Um, but we also do a lot to empower local leaders because a lot of these problems are systemic. They are fundamental that are are not going to be able to be changed in, except at the general level. Problems with the temple ceremony, a, a great local leader cannot do anything about. So, so we engage in those conversations wherever we can. But on the local level, there's so much that can be done to include women's voices and and that is something we're, we've actually got another, um, we're publishing our second book this year, and it's going to be specifically on how to incorporate women into local um, practice. And it's everything from um, addressing these issues that we've talked about with um, giving leaders, a, male leaders, a little bit of understanding about um, when and when not to talk about women's health, their garments, um, sexual abuse, uh, you know, rape, all of these issues, uh, for everything from, you know, that extreme to, um, you know, how to encourage women to speak up in ward council, um, ideas for incorporating daughters of my kingdom to encourage men to learn more about the women's history. Um, the, the whole book is chock full of addressing these things, but there really is so much that we can do. Rules that already exist, that local leaders just have to be empowered to do it and be a little bit creative. Things as simple as getting, and I, I bring this up all the time, and I am always lambasted for it, but getting changing tables in men's bathrooms. Because they are there in some, but it's because some, either the building is new or a local leader took initiative. But if just a changing table was in a man's bathroom, how simple and stupid a change is that? But that makes a huge difference to the contributions a woman can make on Sunday, to how fatherhood is um, reverenced on Sunday. I mean, if, if women can't even see that basic and simple of a need being met, then it's incredibly disheartening for anything else. And um, so these simple steps can, can lead to um, creating an environment where women feel more included and are more apt to speak up themselves. That's great. Um, does anyone else want to offer any, like Lisa, do you want to talk about what we're doing with Feminist Warren Housewives, just providing a place of community? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the problems that is difficult as a Mormon woman is that there is, along with the sweetness and light that is expected of Mormon women, there, is, there lacks a certain amount of allowance for talking about the difficulties of whatever, whether it's the difficulties of motherhood or the difficulties of marriage or the difficulties of, um, you know, being a woman in the church. 
those are just not conversations that are, are really um, popular to um, bring up in religious society. Um, it makes women very nervous to, say, if you say something like, you know, I, uh, I really feel like the bishop treated me unfairly. Gee, that is just right for, I, that's like dropping a lead balloon. Um, mm -hmm. and so because there's just really no place to go, you can't go to your girlfriend's at church. You can't go to your mom. You can't go to, there's just really no space for women to go to talk about the things that we struggle with in a really honest and open way. And I think that, that, that all of the women blogs, um, provide that. But I think specifically a lot of the blogs that, um, exponent and, and feminist women housewives and, daughters, and I think that they provide an outlet for women to um, have to have their voices be heard and to speak their truth and not have somebody tell them because it is so common in Mormon culture to say, you know, here was my experience, and then to have someone tell you that that really didn't happen, um, mm -hmm. and that is a very difficult. That's a very difficult thing to have happen to you because you start to question your own sanity. You start to question mm -hmm. your experience. You start to question your your own your voice and your perceptions of reality. And if no one ever says yes, I hear you. That has happened to me. Or yes, you know your your experience is real and we hear you. Then you know you can really live a, a life of of isolation. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that you know while we do get people who come on to FMH and say, why do you just talk all the time? Why don't you ever do anything? I feel like within Mormon culture, having a place to talk is one of the most important things we can do. And it mm -hmm. isn't to say that, you know, we don't want to move into, you know, doing certain things that can be done to make, yeah. you know, lives better for women. But the first step just absolutely has to be letting women know that their voices matter and that they have a right mm -hmm. to speak. Um, mm -hmm. I, I know that just recently in my own ward, I was talking to my bishop and I asked him if we couldn't have more Sunday school um, teachers that were women. And he told me that he has tried very hard to find women willing to teach Sunday school. And he just, every woman he asks turns them down because they don't feel like they have anything worth listening to. It's heartbreaking. Well, um, that's what I'd, I'd encourage any of the listeners out there who are interested in these issues or want to learn more or or feel like they disagree with things that we've said to go out there in what we call the blogger knuckle. We, there's feministmormonhousewives.org. There's the exponent and the wave and zelful. I can never say that word. What is it? The daughters. Yes. Um, those are just some of the great feminist Mormon blogs out there. There's Daughters of Mormonism podcast. Um, so, so there are some really great resources to kind of educate yourself on these issues and, uh, Mormon expression has been really generous. They're going to help, uh, feminist Mormon housewives, hopefully produce some more podcasts. And we're going to talk about some of these issues in depth a little bit more. So, um, I just wanted to say thank you for all of you guys being on tonight and being, being willing to talk about this and being patient with me doing this. So thanks guys. Thanks Lindsay. You did great. Thanks. Lindsay, Lindsay uh, good I'm job. Learning. I'm learning. I'll get it someday. And thanks for listeners for being patient. Um, hopefully we'll we'll get this figured out, and we hope to uh, 
see you guys around on the internet <laughs> and, and in our words. Thanks. Bye.